we are continuing our series, Getting Ready for the End of the World. And the end of the world has always been a topic of great interest from Nostradamus to, in the 1500s to modern day predictions for hundreds of years. People have speculated about the end of the world. And in this series, we don't want to talk about things like when the world will end or how the world will end or who are the major players causing the world to end. But rather, we are asking the question, what do we do while we wait? And some things that we've put in front of us and want to keep in front of us, sort of as a review of what do we do while we wait, is we live with a sense of urgency, with great awareness, with continued faithfulness, with ever-growing wisdom, with genuine hope that gives power to keep going, with the power to overcome evil with good, with a God-inspired vision, and with the ability to overcome any circumstance. One thing we don't want to do is to be afraid. We don't want to live in fear. Now, this morning's message is about the final judgment, and that's a little bit of an ominous topic. But as ominous of a topic as that is, Jesus takes the fear out of the final judgment. Our scripture reader for this morning is Emily Golay. Emily, if you can make your way on up to the podium, that would be great. As she does, I'm going to ask if you are able to please stand and face the center of the room. And we read from the center of the room to remind us that uh, God's word is to be central to our lives, both as individuals and as a community of faith. And we stand because we believe that this is the word of God. And so, Emily, whenever you are ready, please read from Revelation chapter 20. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. Earth and sky fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done, as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what he had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Emily, thank you very much. You may be seated. Now, this passage is an account of the final judgment. I just want to begin by sharing some things from this passage that are fairly clear-cut, straightforward. In this account of, of the final judgment, God is the judge, and everyone answers to God. I can't remember who it was, but I once heard an atheist say that if there is a God, well, when he dies, he's going to have some questions to ask God. Now, maybe God will give people opportunities to do that. I I honestly don't know, but this isn't one of those opportunities. This is the time that we answer to God, and God will show humanity how we have actually treated him. It says that death and Hades are the last forces of evil thrown into the lake of fire. Earlier in chapter 20 and in chapter 19, it taught, Revelation talks about the beast and the false prophet and the devil, how they are all thrown into the lake of fire. 
And death and Hades are the last forces of evil to be thrown in the lake of fire as well. Evil is defeated in the final judgment. And anyone whose name is not in the book of life is also thrown into the lake of fire. The final judgment is not a good works judgment because the book of life is about faith in Jesus. And the lake of fire gives us a picture of hell. And the lake of fire is the final destination to the road that leads to destruction. Jesus talks about this road in Matthew chapter 7 when he says, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Now with all of that said, about the final judgment and hell, it's important to remember that God does not want anyone to perish. As it says in 2 Peter 3, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And while we believe in hell, it's important for us to keep our attitudes in check, there are people who have done atrocious things, and it's easy for us to hope that they get theirs in the end, at the final judgment. But if God isn't wanting anyone to perish, we shouldn't be wanting anyone to perish either. Now, it's interesting to note, and it's easy to miss, but in this passage, it says the lake of fire is the second death. The lake of fire is the second death. Physical death is the first death. The second death is a spiritual one. Verse 14 says, Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Now, there's a lot of speculation of what hell is like, and the Bible gives some details, but probably not as many as we would like. And this morning, I want to try to give us an idea, not so much an idea of what the location of hell looks like, but really more of an idea of what the experience of hell could look like. Again, not so much what the temperature is like or how hot it is there, but I want to give an idea of the experience because it says this is the final judgment. So the experience of hell doesn't begin there, it ends there. And so our understanding of what that's like will have an impact of how we view and live life now. You see, the path to hell is an experience of self-enslavement. It's almost as if we put ourselves there if we find ourselves ending up there. Path to hell is an experience of self-enslavement. James 1 says, Each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. It begins when we're enticed by our own evil desires. Now, the best illustration I can give to this 
is drug and alcohol addiction. Now, I want to be clear that I'm not singling out substance abuse because I think it's worse than other things. I don't think that. I have family and friends who struggle with it. I'm only using it because it's the best illustration of what I can think of, of what James is talking about. Because drug and alcohol use begins as a pleasurable experience. It's something that gives us enjoyment, which is why we do it. And because we enjoy it, it's tempting to do it more and more and more. Now, if we stay on that course of continuing to use more and more and more and more, if we stay on that course and that course goes unchecked, well, addiction eventually will become our reality. And then, once addiction sets in, even though it destroys us, even though it will cost us everything, we can't stop using it because our lives are too painful without it. It's a miserable experience because we know it costs us and we can't stop it anyway. Again, it all starts with desire and sin. The path to hell begins with our own evil desires. Now, I use the illustration of drug abuse, but it really can be almost anything. What gives you more pleasure? Where do you find pleasure and enjoyment? In what things? Galatians 5, verses 16 and 17, it says this. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. What this passage says is there are two sources to our desires. There are desires of the flesh, our sinful desires, and then there are desires of the spirit, which are good desires, but they contradict each other. And there's this warning, hey, look, not everything you desire is good. So don't just do whatever you want. We need to always be asking ourselves, is this good or is this not good? Don't just do whatever you want. And then Galatians goes on to give examples of each kinds of desires. It starts by giving examples of acts of the flesh, beginning in verse 19, where it says, the acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, everything on that list has the potential to provide us some kind of pleasure, some kind of enjoyment. There are some obvious ones on that list, things like sexual immorality, selfish ambition, drunkenness. There are things like debauchery, Do you like to party on the weekends? Or fits of rage? How does it feel to let your anger just go? It feels kind of good, doesn't it? Hatred? Sometimes it feels good to have an enemy to defeat or destroy. Factions? Come on. It is kind of nice. It is kind of enjoyable 
to have people on your side or my side against someone else. We like that. People on our side against the others. Factions, they can be fun. Now, I'm not saying that all of us like all of these things. Some of us are abhorred by some of these things. But there's not a person in this room who doesn't take some pleasure and enjoyment from at least one of these things. It describes all of us. Now, the fruits of the Spirit are in verses 22 and 23, where it says, fruits of the Spirit, love and joy, peace and patience, kindness and goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now look, on this list has things that we derive pleasure and enjoyment from too. Joy, we like that. Kindness, we like that. I'm not so sure about patience and self-control. I'm, I'm going to sign up for that. I'm really not in for that. But, but I think the question is, how much do we like these things? How much do we derive pleasure and enjoyment from these things? You see, these lists... They are contrary to each other. For example, if you like factions and you like to lose your temper or those kinds of things, if it feels good to lose your temper, our ability to enjoy peace then is diminished. You see, the more you enjoy peace, the less you're going to enjoy fits of rage or factions. And the more you enjoy fits of rage and factions, the less you're going to enjoy peace. It's just the way it works. Now, let's be honest with ourselves. Look at the lists. What acts of the flesh give you more pleasure? Be honest with yourself. What fruits of the Spirit could you honestly say give you pleasure? Which ones? Eh, not so much. Desire leads to sin, and sin then leads to death. Again, second death. When Jesus talks about second death or hell, there's a couple pictures that he gives. One is a picture of destruction. And fire is easily the most common picture associated with hell. Well, what does fire do? It destroys. And, Matthew, and Jesus says in Matthew chapter 13, at the end of the parable of the weeds and the wheat, when he's talking about the weeds, he says, they will throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. But later in Matthew, in a different parable, parable, Jesus uses a different picture to describe the exact same experience. It's at the end of the parable of the wedding banquet in Matthew 22 when he says, then the king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Different pictures for the same experience. And that experience of darkness really coincides with banishment. If fire destroys, being thrown into the darkness is banishment. And what's interesting, and again, I'm not going to make a big deal about these two pictures, but think about it. 
fire as a picture and darkness as a picture, well, if you take that literally, they're contradictory pictures. Because if you have fire, you don't have darkness. And if you have darkness, you're not going to have fire. So why would you use, in essence, opposite pictures to describe the same thing? What is being destroyed? What are we being banished from? If that's the experience Jesus is describing, what are those things that are being destroyed or we're being banished from, kept from? Again, pictures of hell are often associated with fire, sort of like this picture. What is being destroyed? What are we being banished from? C.S. Lewis is best known as the author of books like The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, but he also wrote many books on the Christian faith, and in one of them he has a chapter in which he talks about hell. And he picks up on this idea of how fire destroys. And he talks about, he uses as an illustration, well, what happens when you burn a log in like a campfire or something? Well, you start with a log. We have a picture of a log, okay? It's just a piece of wood, that's how it begins. Well, when you start to burn it, you start to destroy it. And so then it begins to look like this. And just in looking at those two pictures, you can see the relationship between those two things. That that black charred thing used to be the clean log on the left, but something's happened to it. It's no longer the same thing. It's changed in what it is. But you never really completely destroy the log. In fact, even if you burned it to its ashes, which we have another picture of that, you still have ashes. You never completely destroy it. You just have the remains of something that used to be. See, that used to be a log. And now that's just the remains of what was there. Now, I want you to compare the picture, the first two pictures of the logs, where you start to see the destruction of it happening, and just compare it to these pictures. These are before and after pictures of addiction. Look at what's happening to these people. Again, I'm not singling this out because I think it's worse than other things. This is just such a compelling picture. The drug addict enjoys the high of the drug as they suffer the consequences of it. They are enslaved to their own desires, and it is literally destroying their ability to enjoy the good things in life. They have sacrificed it all for the sinful thing they found pleasure in. And if this were to become their eternal state, it would lead to whatever a picture of ashes would be the next picture on this. Folks, this is what sin does to our souls. It destroys them. Not in the sense of annihilation, but it makes them something where they're really no longer... We're not human souls anymore. We've become something else. And for each of us, the sin is different, but the result is the same. You see, human beings are designed to enjoy what is good. And if the path to hell begins with our evil desires, the path to hell ends when we lose our ability to enjoy what is good. When we completely lose that ability to enjoy what is good and sin then ultimately takes away our ability to enjoy love, 
or joy or peace or patience or kindness or goodness or faithfulness or gentleness or self-control, when that happens, we become less than human. Think about it. What do we call people who completely give in to their evil desires and commit horrible and horrendous crimes against humanity? What do we call those people? What kind of language do we use? We say things like, Adolf Hitler, he was a monster. Or the phrase, those people, they behaved like animals. We call people animals and we call them monsters when they act like this because we instinctively know that this is not what humans were created for. It's not who we were intended to be. And the path to hell, it ends when we lose our ability to enjoy what is good. As Jesus says in John chapter three, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Look, if we love darkness instead of light, the eternal experience of that, that's hell. That's the second death. Think about it. Think about if anything, that everything you loved destroyed you to the point that you couldn't experience anything that was good. And imagine that's your state forever. Folks, that's hell. And some of us have experienced a little bit of that now. It's terrible. We don't want that. And yet at the same time, it's like we're trapped because we're self-enslaved by our sin. And so the good news then is that Jesus has the power to restore us from our fallenness because sin has already started to destroy our souls. We're on, some, we're on that path. I don't know where each of us are, but the picture of that good log in perfect condition, that's not any of us. We're either the burnt log or we're halfway to ashes. I don't know where each of us are, but none of us are the perfectly fine, unblemished log. Our souls are already tarnished. And Jesus has the power to restore us from our fallenness. Again, it would make a lot of sense that God would want to do something about this. As it says in 2 Peter 3, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. It's not that he just wants to do something, he actually did something. That's right. Jesus died on the cross for our sins. Our sins were nailed with Jesus so that they would die because those are the things that are destroying us. Again, Romans chapter seven. Tell me if you can relate to this. This is the apostle Paul saying, so I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, Evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner 
of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ, our Lord. It's in Jesus that we find our hope to be restored to what we were intended to be in the first place. And do you know what really gets me personally? What I really hate? It's not when I do things that go against everything I believe in. I don't like that, but that's not what really gets me. What really gets me is the enjoyment that I get from doing those things. I'll do things that go completely against everything I believe in, and I find myself liking it. I hate that. Absolutely hate that. I want the sin in me destroyed. I want the pleasure it gives to me. I want that pleasure to die. And that's what Jesus offers. Forgiveness and the power to overcome those evil desires in us. And the more that we follow Jesus, the more we become like him. And how great I am looking forward to the day when the evil things that I do that give me pleasure no longer give me pleasure. And the only things that I enjoy are the good things that God designed me to do in the first place. That's what I'm looking forward to. That's what I want to become. Submitting to Jesus is simply surrendering to what is good. We make it, oh, man, it's just it's, it's these chains that we got to do because we have to... No, surrendering to Jesus is submitting to what is good. I have that backwards. Switch those two words. Submitting to Jesus is surrendering to what is good. Following and obeying Jesus is the path to life. Jesus is our only hope to free us from the trap of sin and death. Jesus is our only hope to keep us loving what is actually good. Jesus is our only hope to restore us to be the people that he intended us to be in the first place. So what do you want your eternity to look like? Here are the lists again from Galatians chapter 5. Put them on the screen. What do you want your eternity to look like? Do you want them to look like the acts of the sinful nature of the flesh? The first paragraph? Or the second? What do you want your eternity to look like? What do you want your eternal experience to be? Because the Bible sure seems to say that whichever one you want is the one you're going to get. What do you want your eternity to look like? And so what do we do while we wait? Well, again, I don't want to wait until the final judgment to start enjoying the good things more and more and more and more. I want to live with a desire for God's goodness now. And so what do we do while we wait? We live with a desire for God's goodness. Faith in Jesus takes us off the path of destruction and puts us on the path to life. And again, I've begun to experience these kind of things, things like anger and selfishness. I don't experience the same joy in those things that I used to, and I love that. 
The fact that when I lose my temper, and I'm the type of guy who I bottle up and then it explodes, okay, that's who I am, okay? Um, the fact that I enjoy doing that less and less, that's a big deal for me. It's not just that I have the discipline to do it less and less. I actually enjoy doing it less and less. It brings me pleasure to not blow up. I love that. And again, this is still a struggle. It's a lifelong struggle. I haven't overcome it yet, but I'm on the path. And I love being on the path. Jesus sets us free from our self-enslavement. And the final judgment then becomes a moment of hope. Because what gets destroyed at the final judgment? Evil. That's it. Which is exactly what I want. My sins died on the cross. It's like how the song goes. Sin's curse has lost its grip on me. That's what I want. 1 Peter 2 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Absolutely. We believe in Jesus. Our names are in the book of life. And so we live with a desire for God's goodness. The more we become like Jesus, the more we love God's goodness. And then the final judgment becomes a moment of hope because the things that destroy us are destroyed. And all that's left is what gives us life. And so Jesus transforms the final judgment from a moment of fear to a moment of hope. Please pray with me. And Lord, we are so grateful for the hope that you give us, that even though we are fallen and that sin still lives in our lives, that it no longer rules over our destiny. That, Lord, you have freed us. And in the death of your son, you have destroyed death and sin and in his resurrection have given us the hope of new life, both now and forevermore. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.